This past week, I finished a, a book titled Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. It is a New York Times uh, bestseller. It's a couple of years uh, old. It's written by a young man named Greg McEwen. And in the next to last chapter of this book, as he begins to kind of summarize the things that he has uh, discussed about pursuing the discipline of less, he says this, there are two ways of thinking about essentialism. The first is to think of it as something you do occasionally. The second is to think of it as something you are. In the former, essentialism is one more thing to add to your already overstuffed life. In the latter, it is a different way, a simpler way of doing everything. It becomes a lifestyle. It becomes an all-encompassing approach to living and leading. It becomes the essence of who we are. What Greg McEwen claims for being an essentialist, I think the Apostle Paul would also claim for being a Christian. Christianity is not something that we just do occasionally. But if we have really grasped the significance of what it means to be in Christ, that Christianity becomes the essence of who we are. Being in Christ understanding all of the implications that that little two-word phrase implies. It, it really means that among all the other things we are, first and foremost, we are a Christian. It is more than just something we do. It is who we are. We are about to conclude our brief survey through the book of Colossians. Our theme has been Colossians 2 verse 8 where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul's typical approach or pattern, if you will, when he would write a letter to a group of Christians, after a brief introduction, he would then discuss what we might call theology, or we might say doctrine. And then he will move in to the practical side, or what we might call duty. Here, here are some things theologically that we need to understand and we need to believe. And then, understanding those things, believing those things, being convicted by those things, here is what we should do. In fact, he follows that pattern in his letter to the Christians of Colossae. 
In fact, if you go all the way back to our very first lesson, very kind of quickly in a, in a brief uh, introductory to this letter, I suggested uh, basically a, a two-point outline to this book. Again, sandwiched in between his salutation and his ending, we have first of all in chapters 1 and 2 what we might call the theological. Paul really emphasizes what Christ did for us. And he talks about the supremacy of Christ in creation. And then when we get to chapter 3, in all of chapter 3, in about the first uh, six verses or so of chapter 4, we find the practical. What Christ intends to do through us. The submission to Christ in creation, or we might say in daily life. Well, the text that we want to study this morning is somewhat of a bridge uh, text. It, it helps us to transition, or it helps Paul to transition from the theological to the practical. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 5, he's going to talk uh, a lot about what it means to be a Christian. Again, because of what we believe, because of what uh, Jesus accomplished on the, on the cross, and the fact that we are now in Christ, this is what our lives should look like. And so he's going to talk a lot about uh, putting off some things and putting on some things. Uh, what Christianity is to look like in our uh, family life. And in our final lesson next week, we'll focus on the first six verses of, of chapter 4 and look at what Paul says uh, being in Christ means to us practically in relationship uh, not only to each other but beyond into the world. And so here in verses 1 through 4, we, we have this transitional text. And he's going to kind of set the stage for the practical while he at the same time reflects back on the theological, the things that we are to believe about Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So these verses uh, might be divide, uh, divided into uh, two sections. And I want to read those verses, and then we'll go back and uh, notice some things that Paul says in these four verses, and then we'll try to make uh, some practical application. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Right. Paul does in these four verses what he does in the entire letter, only he reverses the order. First of all, in verses 1 through uh, 2, or 1 and 2, we have the ethical requirement. He says to seek and to set. Now the NIV uh, says set your hearts. It's literally just one word, uh, the word seek. It means to search, to pursue, to investigate, to examine something. It is a desire, one word uh, study says, 
to bring something into a relationship with oneself. And what Paul would want us to understand, this, this search, this pursuit, is not ambiguous, it's not random, because we know what we're seeking. We know what we are searching. It's Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And so he is wanting us to orientate our will. And the imperative implies a continuous, ongoing effort. But not only do we seek Jesus, he also says that we set our minds on Jesus or we begin to think about heavenly things. To set your minds means the way one thinks is related to the way one lives. And again, it is an ongoing, continuous thing. It is an activity of the mind which leads to a movement or a response of the will. In other words, the interest of Jesus must be our interest. And our ambitions must be tied to Jesus' ambitions for his church and for this world. Our ambitions must not be tied and tangled with worldly pursuits. And again, the reason for seeking the heavenly and the reason for setting our minds on the heavenly is because that is where Jesus is. And so he sets these ethical requirements to seek and to set. And as I mentioned in verse 5, he'll begin to flesh that out a little bit in some even more practical ways. But then in verses uh, 3 and 4, we have this, this theological reality. He says we are in God and in glory. Now, back to verse 3. You died again points back to the time of their union with Christ, which we saw last week from chapter 2 and verse 12, occurs when we are baptized or immersed into Jesus. And we spent quite a bit of time in at least a couple of lessons, even mentioned it earlier today, uh, the significance of what it means to be in Christ. But notice here, Paul, there's, there's just a little shift. To be in Christ is to be with Christ. So it's one thing to be uh, within the sphere of, of Jesus and maybe a little deeper thing to actually be with him. What does the preposition with imply? Well, it means not only do we accompany Jesus, but he accompanies us. In fact, so closely, Paul says, that our lives are safely tucked away in Him. So to be in Christ is to be with Christ. You might remember last fall when we went through a series of lessons on discipleship. And we mentioned in that series that perhaps the New Testament word that best describes what it means to be a disciple is the word follow. Over and over again, 
throughout the four Gospels, we read of individuals attaching themselves to Jesus or accompanying Jesus by following him. And so, again, it's, it's, it's one thing to kind of be, you know, in, in Christ, but Christ is not uh, away, uh, disengaged with us. He is actually, Paul says, with us. And we are with him. Uh, this morning in the uh, Bible class that I participated in, we studied Psalm 48. And our, our theme uh, from that psalm was... Uh, ways God shows his love to us. And so we begin to list on the whiteboard from Psalm 48 all the ways where we see God show or prove his love for us. And one of the things that was mentioned was his presence. The fact that God is with us. He has not abandoned us. And we made the point, this is one of the things that separates uh, the God we serve, the only true and living God, from all of the other gods that the pagans worshipped. They were disengaged. They were not present among their worshippers. And so this this God that we live, and now uh, through His Son and our Savior and Lord, He is with us. We are not in this alone. Jesus, having become one of us, fully understands all the things that we face. And so he accompanies us as we move through uh, life. And the two things that Paul mentions in these two verses, uh, two of the significant things about being with Christ, is first of all, we're in God as well. You know, we're, we're in Christ, but now Paul says, because we are with Jesus, we are also in God. And the little preposition in, again, means we are um, under the sphere of God. We are uh, in God's presence. Uh, We are part of God's family. Uh, We are part of of God's community. We are in a a relationship uh, with God. But we not only are in God, he then has, uh, he concludes this section by looking to the future. And he says, not only are we in God, but we'll also, when Jesus comes again, appear with him in glory. So Jesus is not only our present life, but he is also our future hope. The day of glory may be yet in the future, but its arrival is as sure as if it's already here. In other words, we can fully anticipate and expect Jesus to return a second time. And and when he does, it's going to be this this glorious entrance, this glorious uh, appearance. I know I probably told this story sometime between 1985 and 1992. But I'm going to tell it again this morning because I know you don't remember it. But uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, during the Christmas break, uh, one uh, one day after Christmas and before New Year's, uh, our high school basketball coach loaded us up on a bus, and we went up to Oklahoma City. And, you know, I attended a little uh, two-way 
rural school just north of Ada. Bing, B-Y-N-G. It, it's actually on the map now. And it, it always excites me when I watch Oklahoma City weather and they actually mention Bing. You know, they only mention it as when there's a tornado on top of it. But, you know, and then we're calling our parents to be sure they know that. And so anyway, we, we go up on this cold, kind of like today, kind of dreary, drizzly December day, and we spend all day uh, scrimmaging schools that were much larger than, uh, than we were, 3A and, and 4A schools, and then the day kind of culminates with our coach taking us to this college holiday basketball tournament at, in those days it was called the Myriad, now it's called the Cox Center, but this, this huge arena in downtown Oklahoma City. It's not where the Thunder play any, you know, anymore. They built a new arena, but it was the Myriad. And so we're, we're walking into the Myriad. There are you know, about 20 of us. And right as we walk out from among uh, a couple of parking garages, they evidently opened up something on the roof in these bright spotlights shone up into heaven. And with the clouds and the drizzle, it was as, as if the clouds are parting. And I'm thinking, this is it. And about that time, we start hearing music, you know, the, the pump you up kind of mu music that they do at the college basketball games. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be going up. I'm a Christian. And, and for that long, for that long, I'm thinking, I'm going forward tomorrow morning because I, you know, I am not meeting the Lord in the clouds. Right? My life changed at that moment. Right? And, and, and so the, the point is, I mean, when Christ comes again, I don't know what kind of music it's going to be. I, I, that's not what I envisioned. That should have been the, the first hint to me but it's going to be glorious. And we, we get some glimpses of that in the New Testament. And it's going to be the, this wonderful day. And Paul says, because we are in Christ and we are with Him, when He appears again, we will too. And we will be vindicated as His people. And so it is something to uh, anticipate. It is something to expect. It is something to long for. And I think because of that should encourage us to live our lives pleasing to Him today. So let me suggest this morning three ways that we might apply this text. Number one, and we mentioned this a little bit, but we are what we think. A couple of weeks or so ago on Sunday, in our Sunday morning curriculum, we, we went through the first three chapters of, of Philippians, and this thinking language occurs not only frequently in the book of Philippians, but Paul uses it quite often. And, and I think he would agree with this. I, I think he would argue we are what we think. I have read somewhere, don't have it documented, somewhere that during a typical day, the typical person has anywhere from 20 to 30,000 
thoughts. Now think about that for just a minute. I mean, God has blessed us and created us with this amazing mind. And, and these thoughts really are neither good nor bad. It, they're, they're neutral. It, it depends on what thoughts we have. It depends on, on what we are thinking. And I think Paul would argue that every thought either moves you toward God or away from God. Thus, the importance of a passage like Philippians 2, verse 5, where Paul says, have the, this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus. Have these, these heavenly thoughts to think on the things uh, above. What gets impressed in our mind gets expressed in our lives. Now, I, I worked hard on that. Let me say it again. What gets impressed in our mind gets expressed in our lives. Thus, the importance of thinking heavenly thoughts and to have our minds on Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of God. But, number two, where did I put the clicker? There it is. Number two, but don't be so heavenly minded that we have no earthly use. There is this sense in which we can kind of get caught up in the clouds, the saying is. And, and we can be so focused on heaven that we have no use on this earth. And, and when you look at the history of Christianity through, for 2,000 years, Christians have struggled with being in the world but not of the world. And yet, here we are in the world. And God wants to use us. After all, what does Jesus say that we are in Matthew 5? We're salt and we are light. And so we are uh, to illuminate some things, the ways of Jesus, and, and there is this preservative effect about our lives. And so Christians, for 2,000 years, you know, have... Have, have tried to protect themselves by maybe completely withdrawing or cocooning is, is one sociological word where we just kind of kind of hunker down, as my dad used to say. You know, we, we kind of build a bunker. And, and certainly, we must protect ourselves. And, and we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and so again, we remember the theological reality, the doctrinal truth. Jesus is with us. And the spirit who lives within us, John says, is greater than the spirit of this world. And so we can boldly and courageously go forth and to live and live the life that God would desire us to live and to follow Jesus as closely as we can 
in, into a world that is dark, you know, a, a world that is full of despair, you know, a world that needs some hope. And we have it, right? So how dare us claim it only for ourselves? It's to be shared, right? And so we go forth as we, as we think these good thoughts. It, it energizes us. It empowers us to go forth and to share God's love in Jesus with others. So, number three. I think we need to keep an eye to the sky. And what, what I mean by that is we must anticipate the second coming of Jesus. There, there, are, there are several texts uh, in Paul, 1 and 2 Peter, uh, the book of Revelation, which talk about the second coming being near, near. And there might be several things implied by, by that little word near. I, I think most of all, it means that the second coming of Jesus is imminent. I, I get the impression when you read the New Testament writers, they really anticipated Jesus to return when they say soon, very soon. Maybe even within their generation, at most two or three. And, and I think that's why they, they speak of, of living this, this life of, of faithfulness so strongly. And, and, and why they would say, listen, Jesus is near. He, he could appear at any moment. You know, it's, it's like when you're in grade school or middle school and the teacher steps out of the classroom, but you don't dare misbehave because she could come back in or he could come back in at any moment. Right? And, and so that's motivation to behave. I didn't always do that. You know, and you get, you get in trouble. And, and so we're, we're always anticipating the second coming of Jesus. And because of that theological reality, we should live our lives a certain way today. Now, go back to verse 1 for just a moment. I'm, I'm reading uh, from the NIV this morning. And verse 1 begins, Since then. A more literal translation, maybe even a better translation would be if then or if therefore. There's, there's a difference in the word since and the word if. Since suggests um, a fact. Uh, if is somewhat ambiguous. So Paul, or, or the NIV's translation, is, is kind of reflecting what Paul seems to assume. He, he is assuming that these Christians in Colossae have been united with Christ, have been baptized into Jesus. They are, are in Christ. But it is better perhaps, maybe, maybe for some rhetorical reasons, 
to translate with the word if. Because this forces the listener or the reader to reflect upon what Paul is about to say. And and do you consent? Do you agree? Do you approve of Paul's proposition and, and his assumption? In other words, there might have been someone who heard this read for the first time that says, wait a minute, I, I haven't died with Christ. I, wait, I, I accept some things. There, there are some, some realities that, that I am now convinced of. And, and, and so maybe, maybe Paul would want us to say if. Because that word if is designed to make us think and to make us reflect and to make us ponder what Paul is about to say. So, this morning, have you been raised with Christ? Is is being in Jesus, if you have, back to McEwen's challenge for the life of an essentialist, Is is Christianity just something we occasionally do? Or is Christianity what we are? And and do, do do we really believe some things? And because of our convictions about those things, this is the way we live. I mean, it, there, we, we don't have to think twice about it. It's, it's just who we are. It's just how we respond. Have you died with Jesus? Let's stand and sing.